This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you joining me today. We're talking about authority, and we're going to begin in Mark chapter 11. After Jesus cleanses the temple, in verse 27, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and answer me. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And from there on, they have this kind of aside and they reason with one another. And they say, well, if we say John baptized because God told him to, well, then he's going to ask us, Jesus is going to ask us, why didn't you believe him and obey And if we say, well, John was just baptizing by his own authority or the authority of man, there's a lot of people here who know he's a prophet or who believed he was a prophet, and they're going to stone us to death. And so they eventually turn to Jesus and say, we don't know. And then Jesus, of course, calls them out for their dishonesty and says, well, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things either. But I want to begin here because it shows the importance of asking the question, right? Jesus doesn't respond by saying, that's a dumb question. Why are you even asking that? You know, you know, he, he recognizes authority, the, the authority by which he does things is a, is a crucial issue. And he talks about it freely in other contexts, but here he's using this as an opportunity to teach and expose uh, the motives of these individuals who are challenging him and questioning him, they they really didn't have any interest in answering the question uh, that, that they asked. They didn't really want to know the answer. They were just trying to trap him, as they so often did and on many occasions. And uh, that's why he answers the way he does. I'm, I'm persuaded. But the question of authority is a valid one, and it's it's one that Jesus spoke to often. And what we want to do today is ask well, how did, how did he establish authority? In other words, how did Jesus say, how did he go about proving that what he did and said um, and taught was acceptable to God and, and from God? And to, to do that, we can look at any number of contexts, but I'm just going to begin in John chapter 5 because here we begin to answer that question by looking at how Jesus appealed just to the commands of God. And what his father told him to do. So he says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then if we just flip forward through the book of John, John chapter 8 and verse 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And then John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, For I have not spoken on my own authority, he says, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. And what I, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And then finally, John 14 and verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Okay, so pretty easy, I think, to pick up on the trend in those passages. Jesus, over and over again, is appealing to what? He's appealing to what his Father said 
or commanded him or taught him to justify his teaching. Right. So over and over again, Jesus is pointing that he's, he's saying that, you know, it's God's authority was vested in him, but he appeals to what God said directly. And of course, Jesus would have, he is God and, and he had unbroken communion with the father. And so he had direct revelation uh, by uh, his father and the Holy Spirit. But he also appealed to what the word of God itself said in the Old Testament scriptures that his people possessed. And so we see this many times when, for example, scribes and other sectarians like in Mark chapter 11 come and challenge him and they have these questions for him or they try to involve him in their rabbinical debates by asking him about marriage and divorce or what's the most important commandment and things like this, uh, you know, the laws regarding the Sabbath. Uh, and in one such occasion in Mark chapter 12, that's where we find they ask the question, which commandment is most important of all in verse 28? And so, you know, that was one of their rabbinical debates. But Jesus answers by appealing to Scripture. And specifically, he goes to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Now, he doesn't say that in the context. I'm going to be reading from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Here's what it says. But he quotes it nonetheless. And so Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 here. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. Uh, so it's that's the first and greatest command. And then he goes on to give... The second, from Leviticus 19.18, he says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But in both cases, Jesus is drawing conclusions about God's will by appealing to commands written in Scripture. He's just going back to what the Word says. And that's so simple, right, to see, and it's very straightforward. But my question is, if it's good enough for Jesus to establish authority in that way, to establish what God's will is, by appealing to the scriptures, why isn't why isn't that good for good enough for us? And you know, it, someone might say, "Well, that's that's a crazy question." Of course, it's good it's good enough for us. That's what we should be doing too. But so often in the religious world, the the Bible is thrown out the window when we're trying to answer the most important questions of life: how to be reconciled to God, how to be forgiven of sins. What does he expect and and worship and and how I live my life day to day and how I raise my kids and how I how I treat my wife and um, what do we do with the 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 money that we contribute when we go and assemble with God's people all these questions you know that we that have to do with God's will and and so often Scripture is just ignored when we're trying to answer that yeah Jesus that's the first place he goes. That's the, and he, he he searches the word of God and and then offers the word of God, appeals to the word of God to justify his teaching, and so he looked to the commands of Scripture. But it's not the only thing that he looked to. He looked at uh, examples found in the Scripture as well. So not just specific commands as he was in that particular exchange, but he also will point out examples, biblical examples to help people understand what God expects and what God's will is. And so in places like Matthew chapter 12, he will appeal to the example of Nineveh and, and Jonah's day, in Matthew 12, 38 through 42. And he speaks of how that generation of individuals will rise up at the judgment and condemn his current audience because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And so what Jesus is saying implicitly is that if you want to see an example of repentance, look at what the people of Nineveh did. Right? And he's, he's holding up their example as uh, what is acceptable in, in God's sight. And he's binding it on the people. And he is saying, you're, you're condemned because you're not repenting at the, at the one uh, who is greater than Jonah. Right? He says, they repent at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And they just don't want to accept it. Right? They don't want to uh, submit to Jesus' teaching, repent and follow him. Um, you know, he'll, he'll do the same thing with the Queen of Sheba in, in that context. You know, that she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he says, behold, again, something greater than Solomon is here. And so, again, her example condemned the people because they didn't appreciate Jesus's wisdom. Right? He was the source of Solomon's wisdom. And when people don't follow Bible examples today, the same holds true. Right, and in fact, when we read the New Testament, we'll see apostles specifically appeal to the their example, and with the caveat, of course, that they be imitated only in so far as they imitate Christ, as as Paul said in Second Corinthians eleven. Uh, so, where does that leave people today who would say we don't have to follow biblical examples? Right. Well, I I don't want to be. I don't want to be in that category, right? If it, again, if it was good enough for Jesus to appeal to those examples and establish authority, establish what God expected of everyone, well, then why isn't it good enough for us? And so it's, I think it's a very, I think we have every right to ask that question. We should be asking that question and challenging one another with that question because it, like our first point, has just been thrown out the window, right? When we have those questions about, well, what do we what do we do when we assemble to to worship God? Well, why not read the New Testament and see what those Christians did, right? What by what authority they did the things that they engaged in? Um, what did Paul tell them uh, by command to do? And then what do we read about them doing in in the Book of Acts, right? And I think we can uh, absolutely establish authority for what we do today based upon those examples. And that's, again, not the only way that, or the only two ways that Jesus established authority. He also used scriptures to force people into certain conclusions. So he would use passages that didn't spell out a conclusion explicitly, but he would say, he, in his teaching, he would draw a conclusion that he expected the people to, to reach. And so let me give you an example of this in, in Matthew 22, um, verses 22 through 33, when the Sadducees come to Jesus and they're challenging him again about the resurrection of the dead. So remember, the Sadducees were the sectarians who did not believe uh, in, a, in a soul. They didn't. They didn't believe in eternity. They or angels uh, or the resurrection. And so they just thought when you died, that was it, uh, and there, there was no uh, eternal spirit or anything like this to look forward to. And so they would say there was going to be no resurrection either. And so in Matthew 22, they come to Jesus challenging him with this big hypothetical that they've drawn up where a man is married uh, or a woman is rather married to seven different men. And they ask, okay, well, who uh, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And he says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Uh, and he says in the resurrection in verse 29 and 30 that they 
neither marry or they give it in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And he says, as for the resurrection of dead, he says, haven't you read uh, in verses 31 and, and 32 that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his, at his teaching. And so Jesus is quoting from Exodus chapter 4, or Exodus chapter 3, rather, when God is speaking to Moses um, from, from the burning bush. He's, Jesus is taking part of that exchange as God is identifying himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, he, and then coupled with that, this other teaching, this other biblical teaching, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so Jesus says, that should be sufficient. That is sufficient evidence for you to conclude that there is going to be a resurrection. right? That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not cease to exist at death, but are alive to God. And their bodies await a resurrection from the dead to enjoy the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. right? And that was a, a conclusion that was completely reasonable and necessary for them to make, but they had skedaddled right past it because they weren't willing to, um, you know, it, it, it was going to disrupt their, their paradigm, the, their preconceived notions about um, spirits in, in eternity. But if they had just read, as Jesus says, have you not read? Well, then they could have come to the right conclusions. And so here we are again. If this was good enough for Jesus, if Jesus could read Scripture and say, okay, here's a conclusion that you have to come to, even though it's not explicitly stated in Exodus 3.6, there will be a resurrection. You can nevertheless, from the words that God says and the teachings of, of the Bible about His character, He's a God of the living and not the dead, you can come to this unavoidable conclusion that there is eternity, that, that He has promised a resurrection, that He does want people to dwell with Him forever. And no amount of hypotheticals that the Sadducees could come up with or anybody else was going to change that. Now, our, our goal, Colossians 1.10, as followers of Christ, is to be pleasing to Him in every respect, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to be fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Right? And, and this is how, so far as I can tell, when I read the Scripture, Jesus says we can do that. This is how we can grow in knowledge. We look at His Word, and we fight that bias within ourselves, and we're, we strive to be honest with ourselves and objective, and we look for what He commands, and we look at these examples that are before us, and we try to add all of, all of, all of that up and put it together and come to conclusions, maybe that aren't explicitly stated in the text, but we know, we must know that, that they are, in fact, the truth. And then we have nothing left to do but to submit to that and reevaluate it at, at, at times and, and be discerning and not become so arrogant that, to think that we have it all figured out and settled, and but continue to study and continue to learn and, and to grow as we strive to be pleasing to Him in, in every respect.